You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And Yahweh said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before Yahweh, that the fierce anger of Yahweh may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were twenty-four thousand. And Yahweh said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 639 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, June 15th, 2023, the year of our Lord, Anno Domini, 2023 years since the birth of Christ. But there at the top of the episode, 
was our reading of Numbers chapter 25. Not a long reading in comparison with yesterday's episode, but an important passage. Of course, they're all important passages, but this is an important passage in the context of the story of Balaam. And if you'll remember, if you listened to yesterday's episode, we read chapters 22 through 24, where you have Balak, who is king of Moab, in talks with the elders of Midian, deciding to call for this diviner, this soothsayer, this odd character, Balaam. And what Balaam is supposed to do, and he's expected to do, and it's believed that he's able to do it. He has something of a reputation for being able to do these sorts of things. What Balaam is being asked to do and offered a king's ransom to do is curse Israel so that perhaps Moab and the Midianites can defeat Israel. And Balaam says repeatedly, I can only say what Yahweh tells me to say. I can only bless who Yahweh has blessed. I can only curse who Yahweh has cursed. Which is to say, Balaam is familiar with Yahweh, and he has these conversations with Yahweh, and he knows that Yahweh has blessed Israel. He knows this. And so he tells Balak repeatedly, I can't do the thing you're asking me to do. And Balak keeps trying to bribe or bully him by turn, whichever will do the trick. That At the end of the day, we just need to have victory over these Israelites. It's an existential crisis, especially with how Israel has proceeded out of Egypt to this point. Maybe there have been some ups and downs that we're privy to, but is Balak privy to those? And does Balak recognize that there is something significant about these Israelites and that they are headed directly for him is concerning because the same thing that has happened to other peoples will happen to his people. The same thing that has happened to other kings will happen to him as a king. But here in Numbers 25, which by the way, just a quick reminder, it's been a while, but Numbers is what we call it in English. A more traditional title might be something like in the wilderness. This is the time that Israel is in the wilderness as God is bringing them into the promised land. In Numbers 25 or in the wilderness, chapter 25, you see that the people of Israel, as it says in verse 1, begin to whore with the daughters of Moab. Now, this is a word that will make many of us uncomfortable. Ooh, I don't like that word. That's that's not a good word. Ah, but it is an appropriate word. It's a word fitly spoken. It accurately describes what Israel is doing holistically. This word, whore, is used sometimes to describe literal prostitution and sexual immorality of various kinds. Other times this word whore is used to describe idolatry. But that is to say, what God wants us to understand in his word is that idolatry is prostitution in a spiritual sense. 
It is prostituting your soul and your heart and your mind to a false god instead of Yahweh God. It is whoring after whatever the rewards, whatever the payment is that this false god is promising in exchange for you being unfaithful to the Lord Most High. Yahweh God, God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is Israel's God. Baal is not their God. And yet, what we find here is actually a very similar thing to what I've been talking about with our public schools and with our institutions of higher learning, as they're called, our colleges and our universities that are state-run, state-funded, the public colleges and public universities mix in a whole lot of sex with their leftist indoctrination. And these are not accidental. They are on purpose. This is purposeful. This is a very old idea. This is not a new idea to combine sex with a shifting of worship or devotion or priorities or allegiance. And sometimes that takes the form of actual worship of a false god. This was a very common thing in many pagan societies. Many non-Christian ancient peoples had cult prostitutes, for instance, that were involved in the worship of false gods. To have relations with a cult prostitute was part of worship in some cases. Or to have some kind of a big party to celebrate certain holy days or certain festivals and to carouse was part of the worship of these false gods. And not for no reason, not for no reason do we see Israel getting all mixed up with the daughters of Moab in particular. And what is it that's warned with regards to kings? When Israel gets kings, God warns that if they multiply for themselves, these kings, if they multiply for themselves wives from the nations, those wives from the nations who bring with them their gods and their worship of those gods will also turn the hearts of the kings away from pure, undefiled worship of Yahweh God and towards worship of the gods of the nations. And that's a major problem. That's a big, big problem. What's curious is in our day, we actually are arguably more uncomfortable, more distressed by the polygamy thing than we are the idolatry thing. Nowhere in scripture, nowhere in scripture. I know this is a controversial thing for me to say, but I'm going to say it anyways, because it's true. And if it makes you uncomfortable, well, maybe you need to be more comfortable with the truth. (laughs) Just saying. Nowhere in scripture does God condemn or prohibit polygamy for these kings and these patriarchs. He never chides them for it. He never punishes them for it. He never tells them to turn away from it. He never sends prophets and priests to warn the kings to turn away from it. The closest we get is when God sends Nathan the prophet to David after David has taken Bathsheba and then arranged for the death of Uriah, her husband, to cover over the fact that David impregnated Bathsheba. That made David an adulterer, but his having had multiple wives to that point 
did not make him an adulterer. This is a hard thing for us to understand in our day, but the big problem in that whole business, that whole story, was that Bathsheba was married to another man, not that David was married to other women. And so also David's son with Bathsheba is Solomon. Solomon writes the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. All scripture is breathed out by God, but God deigned to use Solomon to write this wisdom literature. There are real and significant consequences if we want to throw out Solomon. If Solomon would not be welcome in our fellowship, but we would read (laughs) the books of canon, the biblical text that is written by him, we're being double-minded in some sense. The problem with Solomon was not that he multiplied wives for himself first and foremost. It's that those wives turned his heart away from pure and undefiled devotion to Yahweh God. And they did so not by being women and not by being many women. They did so by being women of foreign nations who also worshipped foreign gods and brought with them the worship of those foreign gods, as well as the baggage that comes with worship of foreign gods, differences in worldview and perspective that eroded and wore down Solomon's resistance to idolatry, his opposition to idolatry. And also, oh, by the way, how did he get so many wives and so many concubines? It's almost certainly that he was making alliances and establishing peace treaties and trade deals with the surrounding nations and peoples. And as part of the sealing of the deal, the kings and princes and nobles of these surrounding nations would send their daughters to join his harem. Because what? The same thing, the same thing generally speaking, as what's going on in Numbers 25. A allegiance shift is being associated with sex, plain and simple. I know that seems very crass. I know that's uncomfortable, but it doesn't make it not true. It does not make it not true. Here in Numbers 25, we need to recognize that more is going on behind the scenes than what is happening at face value. And this is typically true. This is almost always true. If someone would accuse you of overthinking it or reading too much into things and situations, if you expect that there's more going behind behind the scenes, if people have uh, plans, purposes, agendas, if they, dare we say, conspire, just make a quick note. And we'll get to Numbers 31 here uh, in a week or two. But make a quick note for now, while we're here in Numbers 25, of what is written in Numbers 31, 16. These women here, on Balaam's advice, made the Israelites act treacherously against Yahweh in the affair of Peor, so that the plague came among the congregation of Yahweh. So it's not our imagination if we think, oh, that's kind of weird that this happens right after Balak not succeeding in getting Balaam to curse Israel. What did I tell you? Actually, Balaam does this other thing. He advises 
Balak and Moab and the Midianites to send their women among the Israelites, their, I'm sure, attractive women, loose women among the Israelites. And this must be enough at scale that it worked on a large scale. I don't know how many. I don't know how many women were sent among the Israelites. But just think to yourself, if Balak was considering sending an army against Israel, how he might field tens of thousands of men, odds are high that he at least had tens of thousands of women as well, if there's a fairly even ratio of men to women in Moab among the Midianites. So what do you do? You just have the men stay home and you send the women instead who are of about that age, who are in the prime of life. Send in the women and distract the men of Israel. And what do we see? We see 24,000 men, probably in particular, but 24,000 who are killed in a plague. Maybe these 24,000 give us some idea of how many Moabite women were sent by Balak and the noblemen, the elders of Midian. That's speculative, but it's a possibility. It's a possibility that you have something like a grand procession or parade, perhaps. Maybe this is something like a Mardi Gras retinue. Maybe this is something like a pride parade where they come marching into the camp and they're rolling out the red carpet, as they say. They're trying to be hospitable, as they say. They're trying to extend an olive branch, as they say. But then we have this section from verse 10 through the end of the chapter with Phineas. Phineas is the son of Eleazar, the grandson of Aaron, Moses' brother. So he is the grandnephew of Moses. You have Phineas being consumed with zeal for Yahweh, their God. Seeing a man flagrantly, a man who is not just any man, because this was surely happening more than just in this one case. This guy is very audacious. He's very unconcerned about being seen out in the open. This man, Zimri, son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. This man, in full view of everyone, is taking a woman to his family, it says. But then where does Phineas find Zimri and Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian? Where does Phineas find them? He finds them in the bedroom. And when he runs them through with a spear, and kills both of them, we should probably gather that they were very close to each other. Well, we'll just put it that way. They were probably very close to each other if this was a two-for-one slaying. Now this, I, let, me just, let me just take a moment to help you understand and let this sink in. Let that sink in. This is jarring for us on many levels. One because we don't take sex seriously enough in the broader culture. 
For another thing, the idea of Phineas doing this is horrifying and repulsive, and it's abominable to us in part because we have embraced an idea of liberty and freedom, which is very libertine, which does not take seriously enough that God is to be worshipped and feared. Also, we don't take seriously enough that there is a false worship that is a package deal with the sexual immorality being described. It's not for no reason that the daughters of Moab are the ones ushering in this worship of Baal. It's not for no reason. But Phineas, he doesn't just do this and then it's like, well, that happened. That was a thing. That was weird. No, no. God is assuaged. God is appeased. His wrath is put away from him. After Phineas does this thing, the man, Zimri, was doing what he was doing flagrantly in full view of the whole nation, the whole people. But then Phineas did what he did in full view of the nation and the people. And so God sees that because this is also all in full view of God. God sees that and he is pleased by it and his wrath is turned away. And then what does he say? He says that Phineas will be blessed with a perpetual priesthood and a covenant of peace. Phineas and his descendants after him, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. And then you have God telling Moses, harass the Midianites. They've been harassing you with their wiles. And so just think about this for a moment. Think more broadly about the clash of civilizations and warfare and conflict and what the big idea is. War is not an end unto itself. War is politics by other means. It's diplomacy by other means. When diplomacy breaks down, what do you have? You have armies that go out and they fight to decide who's going to get their way at the negotiation table. And the threat of being able to field an army also ensures that the stronger side, the clearly stronger side, is going to get their way at the negotiating table. Well, so also, there are other ways of making deals. You can use the threat of violence, but you can also use bribes. And you can also sweeten the pot, so to speak. You could say, well, I'll throw this in if you give such and such. What is Midian doing in sending these women in? They're taking a hostile act, actually. Not just against Israel, but also against God. And Balak and the chiefs of the Midianites know that this is a hostile act. They know. Balaam told them very clearly, repeatedly. They know what they're doing. And as we find out later in Numbers 31, this was actually Balaam's advice behind the scenes to get the Israelites separated from Yahweh. This was a ploy. It was a hostile act. It was a Trojan horse, so to speak, no pun intended, but it was a Trojan horse where you have this as a kind of spiritual war. We think biological war. We understand that just because a sword's not being brandished, a bow and arrow is not being notched and drawn, 
and let fly. If somebody is spreading disease, let's say they're poisoning your water supplies or they are contaminating your grain supplies or they're sending in sick people among your people, we would understand that that's a hostile act. Well, so also we need to understand that this is a hostile act, very similar to biological warfare and psychological warfare as a way of trying to destroy Israel and defeat Israel by taking away their protection. Many of us are not familiar with these things. In fact, many of the smartest among us don't even have a basic knowledge of the Bible. That is made clear with some reporting from Alex Nitzberg over at theblaze.com. Viewers express shock that Jeopardy contestants couldn't solve elementary Bible knowledge clue about the Lord's Prayer. For our first clip in this episode, I will play for you a bit of Jeopardy, and you can hear for yourself how this went down. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. This is Jeopardy. Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father which art in heaven, this be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Now, of course, of course, of course, plenty of Americans, plenty of viewers watching this knew the answer. So some of the responses from viewers on social media were as follows, quote, can I admit to being genuinely shocked that not one Jeopardy contestant recognized the Lord's Prayer? Here's another one, quote, how do you not know the Lord's Prayer? Hashtag Jeopardy. Another one, quote, a clue that's essentially a fill-in-the-blank in the Our Father, Lord's Prayer, and it's a triple stumper. Someone tweeted along with an exploding head emoji. Quote, did anyone else notice that all three Jeopardy contestants tonight couldn't even fill in the blank one word on the opening line of the Lord's Prayer kind of fits in today's Biden's America. So sad, end quote. Another person tweeted, quote, very weak selection of Jeopardy contestants tonight. None of them knew the Lord's Prayer clue. I'm an agnostic and I knew that, end quote. Now I bring this to your attention because we rely too much on the experts. We rely too much on the smart people. And you might think that odd if you think of me as a smart person, but I really don't want you to blindly trust me. What I'm hoping I'm doing with this podcast is I am encouraging you to also cultivate your faculties. Don't just take my word for it uncritically. At the risk of losing my audience, because I'm recommending and referring all of these books and documentaries and news stories and articles and essays, at the risk of losing my audience, what I want more than for you to just listen to my podcast all the time is I want you to be well-read and to be thoughtful and considerate and wise and to get knowledge and to get understanding. I want you to have those things and not just to listen to me and say, oh, well, I'm glad Garrett has that figured out. You know, one of us should, you know, glad Garrett does. No, 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 no. It's a lonely thing if I'm the only one who is working on trying to understand these things. It's a sad thing if the kinds of people that we're looking to in broader society don't even know 
the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. They don't even know that, and we're going to take their word for it on anything else. They clearly don't have the fear of the Lord, which Proverbs tells us is the beginning of wisdom. That's the foundation if somebody is wise. Otherwise, maybe they know lots of trivia, sure, but do they understand how these trivial details actually turn into good choices and a good life? I would argue probably not if they don't know the Lord's Prayer. Probably not. They probably don't have wisdom of the kind that counts holistically mind, body, soul for this life and the next. If they don't know the Lord's Prayer, they might be wise according to the world's standards. They are not wise according to God's standard, which is the standard that you really want to be considering. The world is full of balaks, and I mean that in every sense. (laughs) If we're talking numbers and the king of Moab, and also uh, bollocks in the British sense. For our next story, let's talk about a post over at Not to Be by Edward Teach from June 7th. Uh, this will be brief, but I have a point to it. I'm going to go ahead and play for you cut two here with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau trying to talk about the whatever movement it is, LGBTQ, LGBTBD, TBD, I don't know. Without further ado, here it is. Cut to. Take a listen. I will never apologize for standing up for an LGDP, LGT, LBT, LGBTQ2 plus uh, kids' rights. You can't even say it. <laughs> can't even say it. <laughs> it's such a mouthful. And how do you keep up? Right? It used to be LGBT. And then they tacked on Q. And now it's 2S for two-spirit. And why not throw in NB as well? You've already got a B, but why not have another B for non-binary? And the plus is a placeholder because in case we come up with additional letters that stand for additional forms of sexual perversion and sexual immorality, we'll throw those in too because it's all the same. Because the big idea is that this movement is at war with gender and sexuality morals, norms and morals and the laws of God and man regarding gender and sexuality. That's the big idea. They don't want to call it that, so they give you alphabet soup and word salad, and it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't even need to make sense. Now, I'm sure he regrets that he stumbled over trying to say the acronym for whatever this is, for this monstrosity. I'm sure he regrets stumbling over his words, but it really does drive home the point that this is a political tool. Very similar to Balak, king of Moab, sending in the Midianite women to get the people of Israel to worship Baal it's the same thing. It's a political maneuver. It's a hostile action against political enemies, against those in society who the aspiration is you want to silence and destroy. Justin Trudeau, Joe Biden. That's the big idea here. And notice too, notice he is saying he wants 
to stand up for LGBTQ plus children. Uh, They didn't get to be children who are lesbians or gays or bisexuals or transgendered or two-spirit or queer. They didn't get that way on their own. They got that way through operant conditioning. They got that way through abusive people in their lives. They got that way through manipulative people in their lives who were preying on them. They got that way because of predators, including but not limited to their teachers and in too many cases, their parents. So when he says he wants to stand up for them, what he really means is he wants to affirm and reinforce and cement their being preyed on. That's what this is really about. We have to understand that it's mercenary, but such things typically are. We have to understand that this is a means to the end of getting power and wealth and keeping the same, but such things typically are. Speaking of Joe Biden, though, Katie Jerkovich over at The Daily Wire has published a piece as of yesterday highlighting Ben Shapiro's commentary on the White House talking points regarding the topless trans persons at their recent pride celebration on the White House lawn. Katie Jerkovich writes, Daily Wire editor emeritus Ben Shapiro said he's not buying the Biden administration's shock and condemnation after transgender activist Rose Montoya, a man who identifies as a woman, went topless jiggling bare breasts at a recent White House Pride event. The Ben Shapiro Show podcast host blasted President Joe Biden and his administration after a statement was issued calling the actions of Montoya and other transgender activists inappropriate and disrespectful and issuing a ban on future events. Now, just for anyhow, I'm going to go ahead and play a bit of audio from Ben Shapiro's comments on this. He tweeted this out June 14th, which is yesterday at about 2 p.m., and included the caption, I can't say this on YouTube. Here it is, cut three, take a listen. And there is uh, Rose Montoya, top full down, jiggling his breasts. Now, we are supposed to believe that this is a shock to the White House staff. Um, I have a question. Was that invisible to everyone at the White House? I mean, that, that's, that's solidly a large number of seconds in which you have a bunch of people who have disrobed, waist up, and are jiggling their um, chest. So there is that. So this became a, a national news story. And this prompted Rose Montoya to respond on the TikToks. So here is that Rose Montoya. Conservatives are trying to use the video of me topless at the White House. As always, to uh, a voice deeper than mine. The community groomers, etc. And I would just like to say that, first of all, going topless in Washington, D.C. is legal. And I oh, fully support the, the White movement House. in freeing yeah. the nipple because why is my chest now deemed inappropriate or illegal when I show it off? However, before coming out as trans, it was not. All you're doing is affirming that I am a woman. No, all we are doing is affirming that breasts that look like breasts look like breasts. That is not the same thing as affirming you are a woman. You have a d- and balls, dude. So there's that. Um, also you have all Y chromosomes, like XY chromosomes in every cell in your body. So no, it's not affirming you're a woman. 
And by the way, if, if you thought that there was no difference, you wouldn't have gotten a surgery to put fake breast tissue in you, would you? And that's an excellent point. That, that is an excellent point. If there's no difference, then why did you go through all the surgery? Why did you go through all the hormone therapy? Why are you dressed up the way that you are? If gender is just a social construct, then why, when you say you were born a woman, why is it that you just happen to be wearing all of the effects that are associated with a woman in our culture? Isn't that, isn't that odd? Why are you going through surgery to look like a woman if there's no difference between men and women? I, honest question. Great question. If there's no difference between men and women, why is the trans woman, and here I mean the woman who has had her breasts surgically removed and then she takes hormone therapy to get hair on her face and all over her body, and she now identifies as a man, why is she going through all that trouble if there's no difference between men and women? If there's no difference between men and women, you shouldn't need to go through all the surgery and the wardrobe nonsense and the makeup and the long hair. Of course, there's a difference between men and women. But Ben Shapiro continued his commentary on this, and I'll just read for you a little bit more of what he had to say. The same administration is telling you that if you refuse to cut the genitals off your child, this makes you a child abuser. The same administration is saying that we can't have a man jiggling his fake breasts on his TikTok at the White House lawn, but we have to read genderqueer to your third grader. We must. They're just embarrassed they got caught. It's just when the mask comes off and it turns out that what they were pushing for all along wasn't a gay partner looking for visitation rights at the hospital. What they were actually pushing for was reading genderqueer to your seven-year-old. Then it turns out that they get upset. I don't think they're embarrassed, Shapiro continued. I think that for a moment, they got a bad headline. The only thing that embarrasses them is that people finally realized what you guys are doing, end quote. Full stop. Of course. Of course. Because this is about getting political power and getting wealth that comes with having political power so that you can then sell your decisions and intel to foreign adversaries, foreign entities, foreign nationals. This is about getting wealth and power and having a lever to go after and pry power and wealth out of the hands of your political enemies. That's what this is really about. And again, I say it's very similar to the business in Numbers 25. It's about not just embarrassing people who are conservative and who are Christians and humiliating them and sexually harassing the whole country, the whole world with this nonsense. It's not just about that. More to the point, this is about also trying to get God's people pried away from God. Because if God is protecting them and blessing them and leading them and guiding them, then they can't be beaten. But if you can pry them away from the protection and blessing of God, then you can defeat them. Then you can actually enlist God in cursing them as Balak was trying to get Balaam to do. This segues perfectly into our next story, this one posted by Daniel Plainview over at Not the Bee. Fellas, listen to this man and make sure your kids are protected. I'll play for you cut four. Every parent needs to watch this, according to Catch Up Feed at Twitter. Take a listen. Here's cut four. 
Convicted child offender Jack Reynolds did an interview where they asked him what sort of characteristics he looked for in a child before targeting them. And he said, more important than the characteristics of the child, he looked at the characteristics of the family. The first thing he mentioned was that if he perceived the father to be a threat, he stayed away. Which tells us a few things, dads. One, you better be a threat. But two, you better be present enough in your child's life to where they know you're a threat. And I would say it tells us one more thing that's very interesting. There's a lot of people right now that seem hell-bent to have sexual conversations with our children without our knowledge. Those are the same people telling us that the very things that make you a threat are manifestations of toxic masculinity. So maybe we shouldn't listen to those people. This right here, this is it. This is the point. This is why I am so opposed to the campaign to purge men of the so-called toxic masculinity. However, that campaign presents itself, however the appeal is phrased, however it's presented, this is why we need to push back on it and not listen to it. And we need to purge the <laughs> people who are trying to purge so-called toxic masculinity from society. We need to purge their narrative from our hearts and our minds. Guard your heart for from it flow the wellsprings of life. Above all things, guard your heart. Guard your heart from this push to stigmatize men being traditionally masculine because it is of a piece with this Rose Montoya on the White House lawn jiggling breast implants with the top full down at a pride event hosted by Joe Biden and Jill Biden. The campaign to get comprehensive sex education into American public schools. It's already there, by the way, and it's been there for some time, but that campaign to get comprehensive sex education into the public schools for K through 12 instruction is of a piece with the sexualization of college and university campuses that are state run in this country. It's of a piece with the push for not just normalizing, but also celebrating homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, queerness, what is in view here is predatory behavior. And what do you do if most people are sheep? What do you do if as the head of your household, as a man, as a husband, as a father, you're responsible to protect your wife and your children? What do you do when a predator comes around? Well, I'll give you an example from this week. I was working from home. And my wife was going to go to the chiropractor and get her regular adjustment. Having eight kids, she gets a regular chiropractic adjustment. And her being pregnant, she gets a regular chiropractic adjustment. But before she left, she said, hey, just so you know, those two golden retrievers or labs or whatever they were that charged us a couple of years ago, when I was going to get the mail with John, and now he's terrified of dogs, he's traumatized from that, he's very afraid. Even with nice dogs, sweet dogs, pleasant dogs, he gets really, really scared, really freaked out. They were running loose on the street. They were out front, so I had all the kids come in, make sure the kids stay inside, but I need to go because my appointment is in 15 minutes. I need to go to the chiropractor. And I said, well, hold on, hold on just a second. And thank you for telling me, but hold on a second. And what did I do? I grabbed the nine mil <laughs> off the shelf, you know, not around chambered, but 
I keep a nine mil on the shelf in my office and I grabbed it as well as the spare magazine, which sets right next to it. And yes, we do keep guns in the home and we teach our kids. These are not toys. They will kill you. We teach our kids gun safety. We teach our kids obedience generally. (laughs) That's how you deal with that, by the way. But I grabbed that I put it in my back pocket and I said, let me walk you to the van. I'll walk you out. And not only did I walk her to the van, but I walked out into the street and I looked both directions to see if these dogs are still around. Because what she told me was the kids were inside, the younger kids were inside and they were looking out the front door in our dining room towards the street. And these dogs were barking angrily at our kids through the glass of our front door. And she tells me that. And I'm thinking, man, I really hope they have stuck around. I hope they're still around because I will shoot them. I will shoot those dogs. And then we won't have this problem anymore. If they're going to be aggressive with my wife and my kids and traumatize my young son, then how soon before they actually do something that is physically harmful? It's already unacceptable that they're intimidating, they're terrorizing my wife and my child here a couple of years ago. Also unacceptable, even more unacceptable is if they would actually bite and attack. And so I will shoot them. And their owners should know that I will shoot your dog. I will not hesitate to shoot your dog. If your dog charges my wife or my kids or somebody else's wife and kids or somebody else, it doesn't have to be a wife and kids. It could be a man too. Sorry, fellas. I expect you should be able to protect yourself. But if you can't, if you can't, I will try and look out for you. But this dad here, this homeschooling father, in the clip I just played for you, is exactly right. He's exactly right. Predators of all kinds, animal and human, need to know that the head of the household is a threat to them. Why? Because those predators are a threat to our families. They're a threat to our communities. We need to correctly identify who is targeting who here. And the Billings Gazette piece that I shared with you yesterday, in our episode yesterday, is proof positive that the media is all in on making conservatives and heads of households in particular, husbands and fathers in particular, into the threat, portraying us as the threat as if that's a bad thing. No, no, we're a threat to predators. But let's get something straight here. My kids are not Joe Biden's kids. My kids are not everybody's kids. My kids are my kids. My wife is not Joe Biden's wife. My wife is not everybody's wife. My wife is my wife. If a predator is lurking, that predator had best recognize me as a threat and had best know that the snarling and the snapping, I'm not going to let it get to the biting. I'm just not. If you're running loose in front of my house, barking angrily at my kids through the front door, I'll shoot you, period. That's not a threat. That's a promise. Just for anyhow, while I am pilfering not to be embedded tweets and videos. (laughs) I'm going to play one more clip from this story where there is a Jordan Peterson interview that was done with John Stossel regarding the importance of dangerous men, good men being dangerous men. Here it is, cut five. Take a listen. There's a big difference between letting people do something for themselves and saying men should be dangerous. 
by dangerous, that implies I should be ready to threaten someone, to hurt somebody. No, you should be capable of it, but that doesn't mean you should use it. There's nothing to you otherwise. Like if you're not a formidable force, there's, not, there's no morality in your self-control. If you're incapable of violence, not being violent isn't a virtue. People who teach martial arts know this full well, right? If you learn a martial art, you learn to be dangerous, but simultaneously you learn to control it. Both of those come together. And the combination of that capacity for danger and the capacity for control is what brings about the virtue. Otherwise, you confuse weakness with, with moral virtue. I'm harmless, therefore I'm good. It's like, no, that isn't how it works. That isn't how it works at all. If you're harmless, you're just weak. And if you're weak, you're not going to be good. You can't be, because it takes strength to be good. It's very difficult to be good. Exactly right. A good man is not a weak man. A good man is a dangerous man who has it under control. And more of us need to know that. More of us need to become acquainted with that again. In response to John Stossel, who, to my knowledge, is a very libertarian type. He's done a lot of good reporting over the years, but he's a very libertarian type. Libertarians very often have this mindset towards violent action that says you don't do any harm to anybody. It's very pacifistic. Just live and let live. Let everybody just do what everybody's going to do. No, 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 no. A good man needs to be a dangerous man and vice versa. A dangerous man should be a good man, but because there are dangerous men who are not good men, there need to be good men who are also dangerous men so that they can protect those who would be vulnerable. Widows and orphans, for instance, for example, but also if you have a wife and children yourself, you need to be capable of protecting them. If there are other weak people, vulnerable people, naive people in your midst, you need to be able to protect them as well. If you would be good, if you would be a good man. I'll note as well, if you want to, you can check out this interview. It's embedded in the story at not the Bee by Daniel Plainview, the interview with the convicted child predator, Jack Reynolds. I'm not going to play the audio for you. I don't need to. I don't need to watch that and make myself angry. It's enough for me to know that this is very clearly the thinking of sophisticated, accomplished, practiced child predators. It's enough for me to know it and to make sure that I'm prepared to deal with such threats and that they know I am a threat. In other news, Sesame Street dragged on Twitter for sharing progress pride flag. Reporting by Amanda Harding over at the Daily Wire brings this to our attention as of yesterday. Quote, on our street, we celebrate inclusion, belonging, and freedom of authentic self-expression. Happy Pride Month to all the people in our neighborhoods. End quote. The post said, along with a rainbow array of hearts following the text, an attached image depicts a colorful cartoon garden with the progress pride flag in the center of it. What are some of the responses from Twitter users? Quote, this does not need to be shown to kids or taught to kids. Go back to normal Sesame Street and hashtag leave our kids alone in this stuff. Quote, it was a great run. Thank you for all you did to make me the man I am today, Sesame Street, and for doing so much to make my world a better place. I regret that my own sons will not have that opportunity, though I am glad Bob was spared from this. All the best. 
Quote, children do not need to be subjected to the sexual preferences of adults. Quote, the letter of the day is G for groomer. Quote, yes, because children truly understand what pride means. Can we just leave the kids alone, please? Let them be little without pushing a sexual agenda, end quote. Now, you need to understand that this is coming down from the very top. This is sign that PBS and our government writ large, if the White House event wasn't enough, this is proof that our government has been infiltrated and taken over by people who are radical leftists and who want to groom your kids. Uh, Remember several years ago when it was just the weirdest thing, it was the craziest thing that some people were talking about these very wealthy, powerful elites in our government or in corporate America or around the world who were engaged in human trafficking so that they could kidnap kids and be pedophilic with them. Remember how that was just crazy. It was just a a crazy conspiracy theory. Ah, get out of here with that. No, 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 no. Come on. It's less and less far-fetched when PBS is promoting pride on their Twitter account. It's less and less crazy when you have the president of the United States of America saying, they're all our kids. There is no such thing as other people's kids. They're all our kids. It's not for no reason, in my mind, that the same people wanting to push for the grooming of children and putting parents on terrorist watch lists if they show up to PTA meetings or school board meetings angry about their kids being forced to share bathrooms with members of the opposite sex or being molested, raped by their teachers. It's not for no reason that the DOJ and the FBI has targeted those parents, even as the ATF has tried to ban, for one, create a registry of AR-15s in this country by way of changing the rule on pistol braces. But for another thing, the left that wants to molest our children and is in the process of corrupting our minors in this country is also trying to take the guns away. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. What you're trying to do is you're trying to remove the threat of an angry father coming after your pedophile ring. It's less and less behind the scenes and behind closed doors and secret. It's more and more in broad daylight and openly celebrated and openly argued for and advocated for. But this has been a long time in our colleges and our universities. That's what Ben Shapiro's 2004 book, Brainwashed, says. 2004, it was in our colleges and universities being argued for. The normalization of pedophilia was being argued for. Homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, bestiality, everything, all of it. While at the same time, these same professors and these same teacher's aides and these same school administrations were pushing Christians out and conservatives out. Not for no reason. Not for no reason. For our next story, we'll talk about a school here in the U.S. where the students were told to wear pride colors, rainbow colors, in celebration of Pride Day and Pride Month and Pride Year and Pride Life. 
like Joe Biden said at the White House event. Edward Teach brings us another bit of reporting over at Not to Be, June 14th. Middle schoolers staged a revolt on the day they were told to wear rainbow colors to celebrate pride. They wore red, white, and blue and said their pronouns were USA. Woke faculty is freaking out. I'll play for you cut six here and you can hear it for yourself. What's going on? Take a listen. Parents angry at town hall over intolerance at Marshall Simons Middle School. Kids were asked to wear rainbow clothes in honor of Pride Spirit Day. But some organized a counter protest wearing red, white and blue or black. The principal sharing a statement to families that Pride posters were ripped down, stickers ripped up. Some students chanted USA are my pronouns and students showing Pride were intimidated. It was an unruly disruption in fact, that was organized ahead of time. While some parents were upset, others say it was overblown. Some of the kids threw the stickers on the ground. But, you know, I can only speak for my daughter. She just, she didn't want to wear that to school. It's not that she wanted to hurt anybody's feelings. She says her daughter felt coerced to participate in the Pride event and was offended by some of the messages, like this quote from Tennessee Williams. Human heart cannot be straight. It is curves and winds. And my daughter just kind of said, you know, Mom, that's... That's offensive to to me, who I am straight. Now, where is this school, this public school, you may wonder? Marshall Simmons Middle School is in Burlington, Massachusetts. Burlington is in Middlesex County. Middlesex County, according to Edward Teach, is a very liberal place. In Middlesex County, MA, 71.5% of the people voted Democrat. In the last presidential election, 26.3% voted for the Republican Party and the remaining 2.2% voted independent. They are actually off the chart liberal in the best places liberal conservative index. Not just on this, across the board, they're a very liberal place. They're, They're very liberal people there in that county. These kids saying, that's it, we're tired of it, no more, no mas, you might say are liberating themselves from woke indoctrination And to the mom's point, who's being interviewed about what her daughter said, this is very offensive to me because I'm straight. Now, how old is her daughter? It's a middle school. Her daughter is straight. She's a middle schooler. You're not supposed to have a sexual orientation in high school or middle school or elementary school. You're supposed to be a kid. When did we stop believing that? Well, probably about the same time that comprehensive sex education was pumped into public school curriculums. And then all of a sudden, the assertion is that sexuality is a human right for children. And since they are being cast as sexual beings, it's a hop, skip, and a jump to let's encourage them. Let's not just talk with them about sex. Let's encourage them to have sex, not just with each other, but also with adults if they want to. Who are you to say no? These kids showing up in red, white, and blue, or black, black is probably more appropriate, black for mourning, and tearing the posters down and throwing the stickers on the ground and chanting USA and saying their pronouns are USA. It's a little bit of happy news, I would say. I would say that is happy news because this is tyrannical, totalitarian. This is evil, what is being done to these kids. And if the parents aren't going to step up, if the parents aren't going to stand up for them, well, then at a certain point, these kids are going to have to be allowed to throw off the perversion and repent and turn away from it. They're being corrupted. They're being molested. They're being sexually harassed. That's a better way to look at this. 
is these kids aren't being taught, they're being sexually harassed. When did we stop believing that sexual harassment is wrong? When it was done on a massive industrial scale? When the government started sexually harassing us? When did we stop believing sexual harassment is vile and it is offensive and it is wicked? When homosexuals started doing it, when bisexuals started doing it, when transgendered people started doing it? But there's something deeper, there's something more fundamental, there's something more important than do you feel comfortable or uncomfortable? Are your feelings hurt or my feelings hurt? What does God say? When did we stop believing that we're one nation under God? When did we stop believing that our rights come from God? God never gave us the right to do wrong. He gave us the freedom. That's a very different thing. Freedom can have consequences, good consequences, bad consequences. Not to a communist, I realize, but to the Christian, absolutely. The Christian is supposed to expect blessings for obedience and punishment for disobedience. That's what the Christian expects. That's what broader society should expect from its government. But obedience to what? Disobedience to what? If the government is commanding obedience to pagan gods, well, then we have to disobey. We have to disobey. In other news, let's take a step back from the United States of America and North America for that matter. Let's talk about a bit of reporting from Carlos Garcia over at theblaze.com about a cult in Kenya, which is a doomsday cult, a doomsday starvation cult. That's a new one I haven't ever heard of before. The death toll has reached 300 and over 600 more are missing now. Authorities said the death toll of a starvation suicide cult in Kenya had reached 300 and many more reported deaths are expected after local officials said more than 600 people are missing from the area. Coastal Regional Commissioner Rhoda Onyancha said that 19 more bodies had been exhumed from mass graves in a property allegedly owned by Pastor Paul McKenzie in Kilifi County on the coast of Kenya, according to Africa News. McKenzie allegedly told his followers of the Good News International Church that they would meet Jesus Christ in heaven if they starved themselves. Police began an investigation after receiving a tip that dozens of people were starving themselves on the order of a pastor. They rescued about 95 emaciated people from the property and arrested McKenzie. Some of the parishioners died on the way to a hospital. Authorities said that 65 of the rescued parishioners began a hunger strike to protest their detention at a shelter. They were charged with attempting suicide and moved to a jail on Monday. Relatives of McKenzie's followers said that he had predicted an end of the world to come in August and then moved it to April 15th. A former deputy preacher of the religious sect said that followers were told to starve children first by leaving them in the sun and claimed that some were buried while they were still breathing. And this is just a horrific thing, right? This is a horrific, horrific, evil thing. But this is illustrative of a number of things that are very important for us to talk about. One being that the desire for purpose and belonging can be so strong for some people that they would do this. And they would not just starve themselves, but they would starve their children. This pastor is a false teacher. What he is preaching is demonic. What he ordered his followers to do is demonic. This is evil. What these people were willing to do demonstrates that a lot of folks are sheep. 
and they need to be protected by, in particular, men. You know, those of us who have Y chromosomes, we need to act like it. And when we hear something that doesn't match up to what God's word says, we need to ask the why. Put the Y chromosome into your response to whatever is preached or taught or advertised or reported that doesn't line up with the truth and goodness and beauty of God's word. You should be asking why, right? Why do you say that? What's really going on here? Prove to me from the biblical text that what you're saying is true. And don't be bullied. Don't be bought, for one, with the promise of being included in a death cult. What kind of inclusion is that? Don't be bullied by the threat of exclusion. Hey, you're either going to submit unquestioningly or you're out. Out of a death cult? Do you promise? (laughs) No, no. No, no. Don't leave it at that either. Expose the deeds of darkness. Teach only what accords with sound doctrine, but also oppose manfully threats of a spiritual nature, because that's how this worked its way into so many of these men, women, and children being killed and killing themselves and killing one another. That's how they were deceived, was because this is a pastor. You're supposed to be able to trust pastors. Well, you can't always. You can't always trust pastors. And this is why pastors need to be accountable, just like the people that they shepherd need to be accountable. This is why it can be a very dangerous thing when a pastor is put on a pedestal and you're not allowed to, you're not supposed to disagree with them on anything. That's a dangerous sign of unhealth. And that actually is more of a danger to your soul than this pastor or that pastor who's on a power trip or who is predatory because pastors can be predatory. I've had some dealings with a few. They're not all, right? Those of you who don't go to church, you say, ah, church is just a whole bunch of hypocrites. It's like, well, yeah, but you can be a hypocrite outside of church too. Church should be the bride of Christ. And Christ is not a hypocrite. If everyone else ever has been at times, Christ never was and he never will be. And he certainly isn't right now. Christ's bride, led by faithful men who hate bribes, who are not predatory, but who are protective, Christ's bride isn't going to ask you, demand of you, unquestioned, unquestioning obedience to every will and whim of the pastor. The appropriate way of characterizing the pastor is actually as one of the two men who was just recently recognized this past Sunday at our church, Summit View Community Church in Evans, Colorado, as he put it, he's an under-shepherd. Christ is the good shepherd. He has the privilege and the honor of being an under-shepherd. And I can vouch for everything I've seen and heard from Jim, Jim Long. I see and I hear nothing but sincerity and humility and confidence and faith in the Lord, his God. That's how a pastor should talk. That's how a pastor should relate to the flock. But if you have somebody who is either greedy for unjust gain, see also prosperity theology, many televangelists, many of the health and wealth theologians. If you have somebody who's abusive and a bully, and they're not always the same people. In fact, very often, 
they jump at the chance to stick it to the prosperity theology guys. Any excuse will do for them to go after somebody. No, no, no. The Lord's servant is not supposed to be a predator. You can have wolves in sheep clothing. You can have false teachers who come in and they sound so good. They tickle the ears. Soothing words are offered up to entice you, to seduce you. But if they're not actually leading you in Christ, what is that? In this case, it's extreme, dramatic, egregious, obvious. The death cult is not of Christ. But come back to the U.S. Come back to an American context and think about how many churches are going along with the woke business. And what is that when a pastor does a very similar, very similar uh, greedy, ambitious, vain thing to this cult leader in Kenya, but with the woke business? If you're a real Christian, you're going to embrace what the left is saying. If you really care about your testimony, if you really care about your witness, if you really care about being submissive to proper authorities, you're going to give in to the woke business. I dare say those pastors at best have forgotten their first love. If they are even Christians, if they are even true pastors in the first place. And by the way, oh, by the way, can I just point out, you can have a true pastor who says the wrong thing, who gets misled himself. We see this in the New Testament. We see this in the case of Peter. Barnabas was deceived for a time by the Judaizers, but Peter was so afraid of offending the Judaizers that he refused to eat with the Gentiles for a time. Why? Because eating with the Gentiles would offend the Judaizers, who were demanding that the Gentile converts be circumcised and observe all of the feasts and the holy days. In other words, keep the law. Keep the law, and then you believing in Christ will account for something. That's not what Jesus said. That's not the gospel that Paul preached by the power of the Holy Spirit That is not the gospel of the New Testament. It's a false gospel. If you say you have to have the law, the works of the law, which have been fulfilled, not all have, but some, many have been, you shall not murder, you shall not covet, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not do any of those things if you're a Christian and you don't do those things as a Christian and then say, grace, grace, grace that is greater than all my sins. No, no. You don't give cover for those who do those things and say, well, we've got to give grace. We've got to pour grace on it. We've got to not keep a record of wrongs. No, you have to keep watch over your soul and guard your heart. And sometimes that requires you have to make a note of whether this is a good tree or a bad tree based on whether it's bearing good fruit or bad fruit. There have to be those categories of good fruit and bad fruit for you to be able to judge the tree and to know whether this is a false teacher or a good teacher, a faithful teacher. I'll bet you anything, if we were to survey the chronology, if we were to do an autopsy on this death cult in Kenya, we would find that there was all kinds of bad fruit leading up to this moment. There was all kinds of bad fruit that should have been called out, and it wasn't. And part of how this can work its way into the hearts and minds of even genuine, sincere, but yes, naive Christians is when the pastor starts saying, mine is the only true church. All of the other churches are apostate. Mine is the only true church. 
as in this little gathering of believers. No, 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 no. Surely there are other saints. And the litmus test shouldn't be, does the other pastor across town disagree with you on some minor point of doctrine, but does he preach Christ crucified? Does he hold to the gospel that Paul preached? That should be the test. We can disagree. We can have important disagreements. We can have significant disagreements. But it's interesting. I would draw your attention to another bit of news regarding churches. This story will be our last for this episode, but this story is a doozy. And it's worth our full attention. Even if you're not a Southern Baptist, even if you're not a Baptist, this is very, very important. And this is key and crucial for us to watch and pay attention to and think about. We need to think about it and we need to have the right thinking about it. But it's official, John Knox reports. It's official Southern Baptist Convention votes to disfellowship Saddleback Church for ordaining women pastors. Come watch Rick Warren and Al Mohler's epic debate on the issue. Now I'm going to play for you a extended clip of this convention in which we have Rick Warren, author of The Purpose Driven Life, pastor of The Purpose Driven Church, really, also known as Saddleback Church. This is a megachurch pastor. This is a megachurch congregation. This is a very big player, a very big fish in the SBC pond, in the American evangelical pond, arguing for why his church should not be disfellowshipped from the SBC. And then the follow-up is Al Mohler, Dr. Al Mohler, giving the response as to why, yes, indeed, Saddleback and Rick Warren should be disfellowshipped. You are not of us. We are not in agreement. We are not in fellowship anymore. But without me needing to give you the play-by-play, I can just let you listen to this audio. I'll let you listen to the audio of these two men, these two highly respected, well-known in many circles, Christian leaders in the American church, in the SBC, up until recently, Rick Warren would have been considered part of the SBC. Take a listen. Here's our final clip for this episode. The chair recognizes Rick Warren for three minutes, and following his conclusion, the chair will recognize the executive committee and credentials committee for three minutes to respond. For 178 years, the SBC has been a blend of at least a dozen different tribes of Baptists. If you think every Baptist thinks like you, you're mistaken. What we share in common is a mutual commitment to the inerrancy and the infallibility of God's Word and to the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. No one is asking any Southern Baptist to change their theology. I'm not asking you to agree with my church. I am asking you to act like a Southern Baptist who have historically agreed to disagree on dozens of doctrines in order to share a common mission. Since Southern Baptists have always allowed disagreement on doctrines, of, including the essential doctrines of salvation, why should this one issue cancel our fellowship? In 2013, when the Calvinists were under fire, Baptists agreed to disagree and the split was averted. Now, 10 years later, will we treat egalitarian Baptists with the same grace we showed the Calvinists? 
We should remove churches for all kinds of sexual sin, racial sin, financial sin, leadership sin, sins that harm the testimony of our convention. But the 1,928 churches with women on pastoral staff have not sinned. If doctrinal disagreements between Baptists are considered sin, we all get kicked out. You'll never get 100% of Baptists to agree 100% on 100% of doctrine. That's why our Constitution says that churches must closely identify, not completely identify, with our confession. Now, the Baptist faith and message is 4,032 words. Saddleback disagrees with one word. That's 99.9999999999 in agreement. Isn't that close enough? Al Mohler, who for some reason gets to speak twice and do the rebuttals, claims the phrase, the office of the pastor is limited to men, that that also includes every staff position too, and somehow it also prevents any woman from teaching. But I was able to contact about half over half of the original drafting committee of the Baptist Faith Message 2000, and seven of them told me Al was wrong. In fact, before the vote on the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, even Al in his hometown newspaper said it didn't limit women from being assistant pastors. Go read it in the Courier Journal. If this precedent is set, Southern Seminary will have to change the name of the Billy Graham School since Billy Graham trained women pastors at our global training events and he endorsed the preaching ministry of his daughter saying Anne is the best preacher in, in the Graham family. Vote no. If this precedent is set, we'll have to rename our two... I'm very sorry, but the time has expired. Chair now recognizes the executive committee Credentials Committee for a response. Thank you, Mr. President. As the chairman of the executive committee, I would like to again recognize Dr. Albert Moeller as the representative of the executive committee to respond to the appeal. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I just want to say that my position was there misrepresented, but nonetheless, it is important to state for the record that Albert Moeller does not say what the Baptist faith and message means. The Southern Baptist Convention says what the Baptist faith and message means and is quite competent to accomplish that task. In the year 2000, the words, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture was inserted because 30 years ago this issue threatened to tear this denomination apart. The definition of friendly cooperation came down to the fact that that was an issue that would endanger the cooperative cohesion and faithfulness of the church, of the Southern Baptist Convention. And in particular, we look to this issue because Southern Baptists decided this is not just a matter of church polity. It is not just a matter of hermeneutics. It's a matter of biblical commitment, a commitment to the Scripture that unequivocally, we believe, limits the office of pastor to men. It is an issue of biblical authority. It is one that has actually led to the unity of the Southern Baptist Convention as Southern Baptists have gone forward with an issue of clarity here, which has greatly made our doctrine and order a matter of unity and harmony. It is the unity and harmony of the Southern Baptist Convention that is now at stake. And we're in an unusual situation. Once again, this is not 
a convention responsibility to offer a comprehensive verdict on the ministry of Rick Warren or Saddleback Community Church. We can thank God for every good gospel thing that is represented by that church and its ministry. It is a question about the Southern Baptist Convention and what it means for a church to be in friendly cooperation in doctrine and in order with this convention. And here we face the unusual situation in which Dr. Warren himself has made repeated statements and the church has taken repeated actions that make very clear that it rejects the confessional understanding of the Southern Baptist Convention on this issue. This isn't a question of misunderstanding. The Credentials Committee and the Executive Committee took action based upon the actions of Saddleback Community Church in establishing a woman as a campus pastor and having women with the title of pastor to teach in the teaching role on Sunday morning, and then Pastor Warren going on to say more expansively that the church basically, and he, endorses and calls for a more comprehensive egalitarianism. I'm confident that's not where the Southern Baptist Convention is going to go. I believe that it is a statement without rancor and without personal attack, without making a comprehensive verdict on a congregation that is no longer among us. We simply say that our credentials committee and executive committee have done the right thing. We need to do that. And I agree with and respect and would also have applauded, had I been there, I'm not a Southern Baptist, but had I been there at that convention, I would have also applauded Al Mohler's remarks, and I do applaud them. I agree with the stance that the SBC is taking with regards to Saddleback Church, with regards to Rick Warren, and I am encouraged by the final tally of the election results. It was voted on. It was voted on to sustain the executive committee's action to remove Saddleback Church from fellowship with the SBC. This was voted on at the convention. Yes, votes accounted for 88.46%, 9,437 yes votes. No votes accounted for 11.36%, 1,212 no votes said, no, we don't want to sustain this decision, this action to disfellowship Saddleback Church, to remove Saddleback Church from the SBC. What will happen with the 1,212 who voted no? Maybe they leave the SBC. Maybe they go and join some other network of churches. I don't know. But pray for them because they're wrong. They're wrong about this. Paul, the apostle, was very clear. He said, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. You cannot misunderstand that. You cannot mistake that. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Rather, she is to keep silent. And if she has a question... She is to ask her husband when she gets home. Now, a word about this. A word about this generally, broadly speaking. No pun intended. A theme of the interactions between Jesus and the religious leaders in the gospel accounts. 
is that very often the religious leaders will put forward some expert on the law to test Jesus publicly, to challenge Jesus in his understanding of Torah in particular. But a challenge comes in the form of a question. The question is always or almost always a pitting of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, against one another. What is actually being challenged is Jesus' authority when the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the experts on the law, try to ask an entrapping question of Jesus. What's actually being challenged is whether he has the authority to be teaching what he's teaching, doing what he's doing, forgiving sins, making the claims about himself that he's making. That's what's actually being challenged, not the particular point of legal technicality, not the minutiae of the law of Moses. What's actually happening in those moments is the questions are a way of trying to undermine Jesus and trying to remove support on the part of the people who are listening to Jesus. They are coming by the thousands to hear him teach and preach and to see him heal and cast out demons and forgive sins. The questions can, in the context of the early church and all the way up to the present, the questions that a woman might ask in a Sunday school group or a small group or a Bible study or a general conversation, the question the question might not be a question. The question might be a challenge sometimes, either of the authority of the pastor or elder or overseer or teacher who has been appointed, or, and this is where it gets even more <laughs> spicy, <laughs> sometimes the question can be asked as a way of the woman actually undermining her husband's authority seeking to take a certain headship over him. We should not be naive and suppose that only men can be in error, only men can be rebellious, only men can cause trouble, only men can cause drama. No, no, it just looks different when women do it. It just looks different. What was the original curse? After the eating of the forbidden fruit, God cursed the serpent and said he would eat the dust, crawl around on his belly for the rest of his days, and that he would bite the heel of the seed of the woman, but that the seed of the woman would crush his head. That was the curse on the serpent. What was the curse on the man? The curse on the man was that work was going to be harder now, and it was going to be less enjoyable, essentially. It was going to be more painful and less rewarding. Work was going to involve thistles and the ground actually resisting his efforts to make it productive. That was the curse on the man, which gives us some idea of what work was like prior to the curse and the fall. Work was enjoyable and fun and happy and easy and productive, more like play, I would dare say. But what was the curse on the woman? The curse on the woman was that she would have pain in childbirth, which is also a bit of a brain teaser, would there have not been pain in childbirth apart from the fall? Now, there's an idea. There's a thought. How many more babies would be born if childbirth weren't painful? If carrying a baby to term 
wasn't uncomfortable and painful. Nauseating, literally. Morning sickness. So the curse on the woman from God, this is, we say curse and we think profanity or we think, you know, magic, some witch casting a spell, you know, cursing somebody who's upset them. But this is punishment. This is discipline. This is a corrective. This is kind of like the rainbow in the sky as a sign that God would no more, never again destroy all life on earth with a flood of waters. It's kind of like that. Something to remember the fall by is pain in childbirth that affects the way that the woman relates to her children. There's no doubt about it. But also affected was her relationship with her husband. How her relationship with her husband was affected was that, as God said, your desire will be for your husband to rule over him, but he will rule over you. So the man is to be the head, and this actually turns into something of a consequence for the man as well, that he has to watch out sometimes, and that she has to guard her own heart against the temptation to try and undermine him, and actually control him, nagging him, manipulating him, withholding certain things from him, or giving him bad things when she's upset with him and angry with him. What does Paul say? Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord in everything. But what can a woman asking a question in the context of the church actually reveal? It could reveal, possibly, in some cases, the expression of this curse, where her desire is to rule over her husband. And so she asks a question of the overseer or the elder or the pastor or whatever you want to call him. She asks a question in front of everybody as kind of a, aha, gotcha. I know more about this than he does as a way of emasculating him. It can also be a way of her trying to get notoriety, get authority. It's an indirect way of teaching, but it's a very Socratic way of teaching to ask questions that you know the answers to as a way of making a point. Paul says, even when it comes to questions, the woman should ask her own husband when they get home, later. Otherwise, she should keep silent during the general service, the general convocation. That doesn't mean she never talks, by the way. That's not what that means. Don't caricature what Paul said. As Al Mohler comments on the SBC resolution to maintain the executive committee action to disfellowship Saddleback Church, this isn't about Al Mohler's thoughts, Al Mohler's feelings, Al Mohler's judgment. This is what does the Bible say? What do we believe that the Bible says as we read it and as it clearly speaks to us the word of God? That's what this is really about. And so also, I would say to you, it's not about what I think. It's not my preference versus your preference, my opinion versus your opinion, my judgment versus your judgment. It's about what has God said in his word. Now, the implications are far-reaching and profound if we say, well, Paul is just stating his opinion. Whatever Paul writes, all of the Pauline epistles, that's just Paul's opinion. What's next? The gospel accounts, yeah, it's just Matthew's opinion, Mark's opinion, Luke's opinion, John's opinion. That's all. That's all that is. Yeah, you got to take him with a grain of salt. That was really Matthew talking. I don't know if we can really trust that. We can say whether women are ordained to the pastorate is 
a secondary issue, a tertiary issue. It's still an extraordinarily important issue in this day and age, especially. And let's just go back to the bit about the thing that predators look for when they're trying to pick a child as a target. They're looking at the family, especially the father. They're looking at the family, especially the father. Why is that? For some clue, for some idea, what's happening every time a transgendered man, and by that I mean a man who is dressed up like a woman and is claiming to be a woman, participates in women's sports. He runs away with the gold. He runs away with the trophy. He runs away with first place. He breaks the records. He sets new records in that sport, in that league. He might have been a mediocre athlete at best in the men's league. In the women's league, he dominates, and it's not close. Because he's bigger, he's stronger, he's faster, he's more aggressive. All of this is by God's design. And if we hate that, at root, our conflict is not with the man or with the woman. Our conflict is with God and his good design. God has a good design for the woman being created the way that she is. God has a good design for the man being created the way that he is. God has a good design for the family being organized the way that God says to organize the family. God has a good design for the church being organized the way that God says the church is to be organized because it's all his. It all belongs to him. It's not Rick Warren's church if it's in Christ. It's Christ's church. He needs to remember that he is an under-shepherd if he's in Christ. Not the shepherd. But what do I hear him in the comments here? Touting. Not scripture. Not God's word. Billy Graham's word. Because why? Because that's part of Rick Warren's claim to fame. That's the tell on his ambition. Al Mohler is trying to be gracious and not make a judgment with regards to Saddleback and Rick Warren. I will make a judgment with regards to Rick Warren. He has been led astray by his own fame and fortune and his own legend. Do nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit. He's doing quite a lot at scale from selfish ambition and vain conceit. And it's obvious. And it's arguably a bigger deal than the ordination of women. The issue here is not actually, first and foremost, the ordination of women. The issue here is, first and foremost, the same as when the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They were really grumbling against God. I don't understand why Al Mohler gets to talk twice. Why, why does he get to speak twice and also offer up all the rebuttals? That's what bothers you, actually. And that's why you're doing the ordination of women thing. And that's why you're not backing down when you really should, because you're in the wrong. That's why you're not confessing your sin and repenting of it, your disobedience. That's why you're not turning away from this for the sake of this fellowship with the SBC that you claim to love so very much. You're the one who has introduced division into the camp, not Al Mohler. Al Mohler is trying to pursue and protect unity of the right sort here. But many of us need to recognize that as well. It's not always possible to have unity just like that, because when other people introduce division, say, for instance, promoting gender theory in the church, promoting critical race theory in the church, promoting wokeness in the church, promoting socialism in the church, promoting 
pro-choice postures in the church, promoting normalization and celebration of homosexuality in the church, promoting normalization of transgenderism in the church. It's not possible to have unity on their terms. It's not possible. That can't be. We have a precedent. We, we have a precedent for this kind of action on the part of the SBC in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you have the Judaizers. And yes, you may think the Judaizers are the opposite of these egalitarians in the SBC, but actually they're of the same spirit. What they're really promoting is not first and foremost egalitarianism. What they're really promoting is themselves. And oh, by the way, can we tie this back into Numbers 25? I think we can. When Balaam is unable to pronounce a curse on Israel because God has blessed Israel, Proverbs would tell us that the woman can be very beautiful and seductive, very enticing. Her words are like honey. And yet, if she's a loose woman, if she's an immoral woman, if she's an ungodly woman, if she's a foolish woman, to go with her is death and dishonor. Now, the woman wisdom is also talked about in contrast, and the woman wisdom is presented as also capable, strong, intelligent, productive, hardworking, dignified. She has authority. It's not a problem for women to have authority, by the way, but who does she have authority over, this woman wisdom in Proverbs? She has authority over her maidservants. How does she have maidservants? Because she works. She has a business. It's okay for a woman to have a business. If she's married, she should be submitting to her husband in everything. And that would include how she runs her business, how much time she puts into it, how much money she spends on it, what she is doing for a business, how that squares with her responsibility as a wife and a mother. Absolutely, she should be running that by her husband. And no, that's not demeaning to her. That's protective of her. What is the predator looking for? What is the wolf in sheep's clothing looking for? What is the lion that goes about seeking whom he may devour looking for? When he's trying to pick his prey, he looks for the prey that is not being protected. So just like a father is a threat to a predator, the father who is a threat to the predator is protective of his children. The husband who is a threat to a predator is not a threat to his wife. He is protective of his wife, not in a selfish way, but in a selfless way, he would lay his life down for her. And so therefore it's two sides of the same coin. She submits to him in everything. He loves her as Christ loved the church. If she is seeking the pastorate, what does that look like in the home? When they go home and she's the pastor and he works a secular job or a layman's job, what are those conversations like? Does she get to pull rank on him, possibly in the home? Isn't that an evil thing, if so? Also, what if she is a pastor and she's counseling a young couple that's considering getting married? Now, she may be an older woman, and yes, she's supposed to teach and have a certain kind of authority, but she's supposed to teach the younger women, and she should have authority over her children under the authority of her husband. But if she's counseling a young married couple as a pastor, she is acting as an authority over this man. And that's a bad foot to get started off on as a young married couple. This man is going to be emasculated. This young man who's considering getting married is going to be emasculated by this woman pastor. And what will he not be the better for 
He will not be the better for being a protector and a provider and a head of his own household because he started off with the foundation of submitting to this woman pastor who herself was not submitting to the authority of Scripture, the authority of God himself. We know that culturally, writ large, in American society, and now we've exported it to the world with evangelistic zeal, over the last century to a century and a half, feminism has brought us legalized abortion, contraceptives, no-fault divorce, a high divorce rate, homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, and now they're coming for our kids. And what that speaks to is a nation of weak men, emasculated men. How did they come to be emasculated? In all too many cases, with the help of the church, with the help of pastors who did the bidding of women, instead of doing what God had commanded in scripture, what Paul in his authority, if the pastor of a local church doesn't have authority, it's an odd look that he's telling these men what he tells them in so many cases, in so many sermons, in so many messages. But if a pastor of a local church has authority, humanly speaking, to be able to pronounce judgments, how much more so does Paul the Apostle have authority in the epistles, in the New Testament, in the Bible? Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Rather, she is to keep silent as in all the churches. How many church problems, how much church drama would be prevented or eased into a non-issue state if we were abiding by that? How much drama, needless drama, is brought on by women being busybodies instead of devoted to their husbands and their children and their households? You know, something I'm profoundly uncomfortable with is even among the conservative Christian circles that I have observed and been in proximity with, there's this tendency to want the women in the church to be heading up various ministry initiatives outside of their homes as if that's expected, as if that is the litmus test for whether they are good, godly Christian women. Is that perhaps possibly us being affected by the world? where we have women in the church doing the equivalent within the church of pursuing a career. It's a church career of sorts. And where does that go, right? What's the aspiration to be a head over a ministry, to be a director of a ministry? What happens when you've got men who are volunteering in that ministry and you have a director of a ministry for children where the director of the ministry for children is in authority over men who are volunteering in that ministry? or a youth ministry for that matter. I'm very uncomfortable. And I'll just say this right here and right now, and I will probably ruffle feathers. I'm very uncomfortable with the idea that we have, in so many cases, older women teaching mixed groups of high school students, boys and girls, because I think that is priming and conditioning us to be sympathetic with the Saddleback Church situations, with the Rick Warren situations, It's priming and conditioning us to accept a broader egalitarianism. It doesn't mean don't have women teaching. Have women teaching. If these are young ladies, though, right? If these are young ladies in a high school setting, a high school youth group, if these are young women, which, by the way, 2,000 years ago, Jesus' mother Mary very easily could have been a 14 or 15-year-old girl. Very easily. That would have been very common in that day. If she was old enough to give birth 
to Jesus in that cultural context, then I think we need to regard her peer group in this generation as young women, young ladies. But have the older women teach the younger women and partition the groups and say, okay, we're going to have the young girls are going to go over there and talk with these moms who study the word, who are diligent in the serving of their husbands and children, because that's what Paul says the older women should be teaching the younger women to do, manage their households well, love and obey their husbands, love and lead their children well. But what are we doing when young men, who in a Jewish context would be old enough to do bar mitzvah, and we even will refer to them as young men, when they're old enough to look me in the eye, I say they're probably young men. When they have hair on their face, they're probably old enough to be called young men. When they start to drive, they're probably old enough to be young men. Should we be having older women in the church teaching them and being in authority over their groups in a high school context? I would say no. I would say no. If we were more consistent, if we would be wise, we should get that straightened out. We should get that cleaned up. Otherwise, we're just doing the same thing Rick Warren is doing, but in a younger age group, we're saying it doesn't really matter. And then what happens with these young adults? And isn't that what we call the literature for them? Young adult literature? Young adult literature is not for 18 and over. Young adult literature is for teenagers, high school teenagers, more to the point. So what are we doing? If we're following a ministry model that has been established in the broader American evangelical mainstream, what are we doing? Why would we trust that? Why why would we trust our families and our churches to that? We shouldn't. In the interest of consistency, we should be practicing like we are going to expect to play for the rest of our lives moving forward. But in the context of the church, you might say, well, why should it be men, right? Why should it be men who are overseers and deacons only? Husband of one wife is pretty hard to misunderstand. Qualifications for overseers and deacons in the letters to Timothy and Titus by Paul, husband of one wife. So yes, polygamists are excluded from the pastorate and from the diaconate. Not excluded from membership in the church, by the way. And that's going to be more and more important, more obviously important. The bigger the Muslim population in Europe and the U.S. gets, you may not realize how important this could be to outreach and evangelism to Muslims yet. But mark my words, if the demographers are right, it's just a question of a few years or maybe decades at most before we have to reckon with this. And it's going to be a major barrier to conversion for a man who is a polygamist. If we don't get it right, if we don't understand this, and we need to be able to argue from scripture or else we will have lost their respect well and truly. But husband of one wife, able to manage his household well, that includes his wife and his children, and any servants, any material effects, any resources, he should be able to manage that well so that he can be trusted with managing the church well. Why is that important? Well, for one, because God made men different. God made men bigger and stronger and more risk tolerant. And the Christian faith is supposed to be Risky business, humanly speaking. I don't want to send a bunch of Christian gals, however sweet, however 
sincere, I don't want to send a bunch of Christian gals, young Christian college students into a Muslim neighborhood to do evangelism. I would, with a lot of prayer and preparation, I would send a group of young Christian men who believe that that's what the Lord has called them to into a Muslim neighborhood to do evangelism. So also, if a wolf comes in, just like it's the man who should be answering the door if there's a bump in the night, his wife should be able to stay in bed, calling 911, grabbing the gun, watching his six, getting the kids all into a room you can lock the door to. So also in a church context, if there are wolves coming in, it should be the men who are assertive enough, aggressive enough, dangerous enough, holistically, to confront them. If there's false teaching, no, we don't need to bake the false teacher a cake and try to win them over. That is a really, really good thing to do in a different context, not in the context of a false teacher. The false teacher needs to be confronted directly, clearly, consistently, and put out. And you need a man to do that. The women who, for the past several decades, have been trying to put themselves forward as the ones to do it, I would say in many cases, were acting out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Just like Rick Warren can do that. Women can do that. Billy Graham saying his daughter was the best preacher of the whole family. That's highly regrettable. Billy Graham's not our standard. Billy Graham is not our final authority on Christian life and thought. God's word is our final authority. If what Billy Graham was affirming doesn't line up with scripture, then respectfully, Billy Graham is wrong. If what I'm saying doesn't line up with scripture, please let me know. Let's talk about it. But if it doesn't line up and I missed something, I'm wrong. God's word's not wrong. I'm wrong. That's what's at stake here with the Saddleback business. And remember, 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 Balaam couldn't curse the people of Israel, but what did he do instead? He gave a little bit of advice. You know, what you could do is you could send in tens of thousands of your pretty young ladies into the midst of the Israelite camp and then just let things go where they will. It's a slippery slope when we start saying, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to innovate. And oh, by the way, how big of a deal was it that Moses and Aaron were told to speak to the rock and water would come out of it for the people of Israel and instead Moses struck the rock? How big of a deal was it? To you or I, we would say, well, that's annoying. It was a big enough deal to God that Aaron was defrocked and the mantle of chief priest passed to his son Eleazar. It was a big enough deal that God said Moses and Aaron would not see the promised land. They would not be leading the people of Israel into the promised land. It was that big of a deal to God. So also, I would say, this is that big of a deal to God. A pastor who is pushing for egalitarianism should be defrocked, plain and simple. If Jake Gresham Machen were with me today, I know he would agree. I know we would be on the same side of this issue. Why? Because that's consistent with the whole counsel of God. Not because that's his opinion and my opinion, and therefore I like him because he says what I say. He thinks what I think, and we flatter each other across the decades. No, no. He was reading the biblical text, not saying, well, I think we can just ignore this piece, and we can explain that part away, and we can just fudge what we call it, but we all understand that functionally, it's actually this thing. We can call it some other thing, but actually it's really this. In 
Christianity and liberalism, he warned about liberal theology infiltrating denominations and theological institutions, seminaries, Christian organizations. And his warning was very stern and it was very clear and he was very correct. The liberal theology folks need to be removed from positions of authority, removed from the pastorate, defrocked, removed from positions of directorship. It might not mean that they're not Christians, but they have disqualified themselves and they need to actually sit under instruction. Not many of you should be teachers, brothers, for you know that those who teach will be held to a higher standard. The liberal theology folks should not be teachers because they don't know what it is that they're teaching. They're the blind leading the blind and they lead people into ditches. Rick Warren should be defrocked. Saddleback Church, we should pray for the people attending there. The 1,212 who voted no on sustaining the executive committee action to disfellowship Saddleback Church, we should pray for them. And doubtless there are many brothers among them, but what you don't do is you don't say unity, unity when there is no unity. What you don't say is peace, peace when there is no peace. For too long, we've had doctrinal minimalism and there are reasons for it, but there's no excuse for it. The ecumenical movement post World War I and World War II, actually, you could trace in this country to the close of the Civil War. Because before the Civil War was a gun battle between the North and the South, the Union and the Confederacy, it was a theological debate. Mark Knoll has an excellent book on this, by the way. You can borrow it. If you're in the area, you want to borrow my copy, I'll loan it to you. The Civil War is a theological crisis. Mark Knoll is badly mistaken about the scandal of the evangelical mind. Read Carl Truman's The Real Scandal and you'll get the real story. But Knoll's work on the Civil War as a theological crisis is eye-opening. This push for egalitarianism and transgenderism in the church, for wokeness in the church, can be traced back to Jake Gresham Mackin's day. It can be traced back to prior to the Civil War when you had this debate about slavery. And does the Bible condone it? Does the Bible regulate it? Does the Bible prohibit it? Where does God stand on this? Maybe we can get God to side with us. And those who didn't know their Bible well enough, many of them just decided to not be Christians, but to hold on to the trappings of Christianity. And many who were so traumatized by the Civil War, brother killing brother, neighbor killing neighbor, countrymen slaughtering each other for years, on blood-soaked battlefields across the states. Many came out of that wanting unity, grieved that both sides prayed to the same God, read the same Bible, and were killing each other. They came out of all of that, and they embraced doctrinal minimalism and theological liberalism. And so what you get is, Liberals who say, all right, if you want to maintain unity, you're going to have to evolve in your position. You're going to have to moderate and compromise to my way of seeing this. And you get more and more and more of that over the decades. And eventually what you get is drag shows, all age drag shows in non-denominational churches. You get every kind of folly and disorder, and there's a word for it, and it's lawlessness. Liberal theology is unbelief. It's a false gospel. It is lawlessness. You can say, Jesus, Jesus. You can say, grace, grace. You can t- 
talk about all these concepts. You can have lots of converts and still be wrong. How many converts did the pastor in Kenya have with his starvation death cult, doomsday death cult? Hundreds of people are either dead or missing and presumed dead. Hundreds of people. Wow, that's quite a ministry. He called himself a pastor. So what? A pastor in the church of Satan, apparently. But this is why it's so important that we not be blindly trusting the pseudo-intellectual, pseudo-spiritual influences that want to tell us as men, yeah, your wife, your children, the biggest favor you could do to them, do for them, would be for you to emasculate yourself. That's what you should really do. No, reject that. It's from Satan. It's from hell. And it's taking people to hell. Fortunately, there's a better way. There is a alternative to all of this nonsense. And the alternative is men, be who God made you to be. Do what God called you to do. Hold fast. Put on the whole armor of God. Take up the sword of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the helmet of salvation. Then you will be able to withstand the darts because they're coming and they're here. Fight the good fight. Not for no reason is the Christian faith presented to men in martial language because we do wrestle against authorities, powers, principalities, the rulers over this present darkness. We do wrestle against them. We do fight them because God has given them into our hands if we're in Christ. By the power of Christ, by the power of his word, by the authority of the Lord our God, we are more than conquerors in Christ We have everything that we need for life and godliness. And that is to say, there's a happy alternative. There's a very happy and blessed alternative to the sadness and increasingly illiberal leftist vision and theological liberalism. There's a happy vision wherein the man is who God made him to be. The woman is who God made her to be. The children are obeying and honoring their parents Houses are built, gardens and vineyards are planted. We enjoy the fruits of our labors. We live quiet lives, working with our hands, just as we were instructed, just as we were shown, dependent on no one, walking properly before outsiders, having a good conscience. That's part of our testimony. That's a key, crucial part of our testimony. We can have that. We can, by God's grace, pursue that and build it up. I say we should. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.